0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Well, Happy New Year and a Merry Florida Christmas. For some of you, you just got down here. Doesn't it feel good to be back in Florida? Woo, you can thaw out for a little bit. Um, Yeah, the last few days have felt a bit more like normal in Florida, whatever normal is anymore. I don't even know if we know normal. Um, After pandemics and now inflation and political maneuvering and supply chain issues and polar vortexes and falling iguanas, red tide, and yes, hurricanes, the last five years plus since Hurricane Irma have just been... what a mess in Southwest Florida, right? Just so many things going on. If you don't feel discombobulated by it all, I'd be surprised because I sure have been. Um, I don't think we've had at FGCU a normal semester, whatever that means, in about five years. And after a while, it gets tiring. You know, the more things change, the more they keep changing. They don't stay the same. And change doesn't even feel like progress anymore. You know, it's just accelerating faster and being more random and more unpredictable. And so we're looking at to culminate our series called The Florida Christmas on just that feeling. Um, And we find that feeling, that sense in the book of Nahum, of all places. Um, We're dealing with the god of the hurricane as well as the god of the covenant when we look at the the god that is proclaimed here in Nahum. And so that's going on. And uh, next week, I think you're going to be I hope you're happy with the series as we're going to do one that's based on Psalm 46 Be still and know that I am God, in that verse. We're going to look at how we are to be human beings, not human doings, and what it means to be content, to be still, to be present in God's presence and with others. And so a series of five weeks. You know, So often we have these series at the beginning of the new year. How are you going to improve your life? How are you going to do this? It's kind of like uh, Christianity often, at the beginning in January, turns to a self-help movement. And it's like, no, that's not what it's really about. The thing that God wants me to be is more like be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ which is much more about character than it is about accomplishing you know, a 10K run. So we're going to look at that okay, in this series called B. But today, we're back in a Florida Christmas to finish it up. What I've noticed, I'm wondering. I was thinking this week quite a bit as I was painting. I had a lot of time to think <laughs> when you're painting. Have you ever done that? You're just kind of like this. So you got time to think. And um, I was uh, thinking that, you know, when I grew up, I know for some of you it's so long ago, it's the medieval ages. But there was this feeling, especially in small town America, of stability, predictability, everything kind of was like that movie Pleasantville, if any of you have ever seen that. Maybe it was black and white, like Pleasantville, but it was very nice and easy and simple, and you just conformed and were into it. Um, But um, our whole kind of American cultural bubble burst, I think, on 9-11. And since then, some of you, you weren't even born then, were you? Yeah, my kids weren't even born at 9-11. But since then, you've grown up in a totally different feel in the United States than I did. And since then, we've had this almost psychic cultural gut level um, angst about America, where we just feel no longer invincible. We feel very vulnerable as a nation, and I think Almost all of the aftermath, 20 years later, we're still looking at the aftermath of all the polarization now and balkanization of America and tribalism and paranoia that's out there and everywhere. is all going back to that event then that changed our sense of safety, security, and invincibility. What we experienced on 9-11 and how we have felt that way is nothing new to the majority of the world, by the way, though. A lot of different countries and nations and people groups, and especially those who are living uh, in lower standards of socioeconomic standards than we do, um, they have had that feeling of vulnerability since they were born. That's just the way it's always been. And um, they've always felt like other superpowers around the world were in charge, not them. And I think that's what's going on in the prophet Nahum's day for Israel itself. Because around them were the nations of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians. And they were stuck in the middle of these superpowers, not being one themselves and wondering how in the world they fit into the whole picture. And to this time and place, the prophet Nahum then spoke the words that both will challenge you, I think, and comfort you today. I'm hoping that's what happens. And I'm hoping what you get today is a deep sense of conviction without feeling like you've been judged. Do you understand the difference between that? Where it's like, wow, I needed that. I didn't like it. But, um, mm, right? And maybe the fact that you will be challenged and changed in a way that you don't expect, because we have seen, I think, in the Florida Christmas series, in one form or another, what I was hoping we'd get across is the fact that we have a God who doesn't do what we expect from the prophet Isaiah. We have a God who also doesn't do what we deserve. Thank you, Jesus, for that, right? And beyond, and today we're going to have a God who is beyond our control but a God who is also good. So Nahum chapter 1. Have you ever even read the book? It's not one of those prophets that I get to that often. It's very short, three chapters long. It's mainly a prophet, kind of the flip side of Jonah, where Jonah goes to Nineveh to, to, to bring repentance, and he's not happy with it. Nahum now is bringing 150 years later a word of judgment to, the, to Nineveh and the Assyrians. But we're going to read in chapter 1. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Net Lebanon withers The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overflowing flood he will Make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Ooh. No wonder I've never preached on the prophet Nahum before, right? Yeah. Actually, the word Nahum, his name means comfort. Where's the comfort, right? Where's the comfort? Well, we do find, I think, that we are going to see that God's justice and his love, his power and his goodness can actually bring you comfort, but maybe not in the way that you expect. I'll tell you this. I don't think we'd like to think about God of the whirlwind and the earthquake We don't like to think of God of the hurricane. We don't like to think of the powerful events that happen in this world and go like, oh yeah, God's hand is in all of that. Now, we wouldn't blame him for things like war or violence or blizzards or hurricanes or any of that stuff. Some people would even say soften or try to soften God's omnipotence, that is his all-powerfulness, right? By saying, well, God allows human suffering, but he doesn't cause it. Okay, great. But if God is not in control, right? if he allows it, he still has to be in control of everything. And if he isn't in control, then who is? Do you understand what I mean by that? So you can say he allows it, he doesn't cause it, but he is still in control of it. Or do you think God not being in control is a better answer? There's actually um, somebody who did, I think, and that is Rabbi Harold Kushner. He wrote a book in 1981, and it uh, shot up the New York Times bestseller list of all things. It was called, have you heard of it, when good bad things happen to good people? Okay, Any of you read it? It was a number one bestseller. And there are some really good points in the book that he makes He doesn't fall into the usual blame game of blaming those who suffer, say, you must have caused it. And yet, at the same time, and he doesn't give simple answers to what's called theodicy. That is, why do bad things happen to good people? And what's that conundrum about? But yet, he still concludes that suffering exists on this planet because, quote, Even God has a hard time keeping chaos in check, unquote, from the book. And God is, quote, a God of justice and not of power, unquote. In other words, God is frustrated at the chaos that he sees in this world, and he is frustrated at the injustices, but he is not able to do anything about it. What? That's his conclusion in the book. What kind of God is that? (laughs) You know, a God who is limited. A God who is not omnipotent, all-powerful. A God who might be omniscient, all-knowing, maybe. A God who might be omnipresent everywhere, but a God who is basically impotent. Hmm, That is not the God of Nahum in this chapter. It is also not the God of Job in the book of Job where God also shows up in the end in front of Job not to explain but to explode in front of him as somebody put it and to be the God of the whirlwind or the hurricane in front of Job. And it's not the God of creation who by his very word speaks into existence all that is. It is not the God of Noah and the flood, but it's especially not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not the God of the covenant, and not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, R.C. Sproul, I think, said it well. (laughs) You know, if God is limited, then we're kind of in deep theological doo-doo, okay? Because he said it this way. If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, Totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Ouch. Now, the opposite problem often happens in Christian circles, though. If bad things happen, then you must have been bad. <laughs> Simple, straightforward, you know, and um, <laughs> very, very linear, very cause and effect. Isn't that fun? You know, well, you must have been bad. Something, and there are uh, religious systems in this world that are very moralistic that way and very straightforward. You know, I keep the rules, I get rewarded. I break the rules, I get punished. Philip Yancey, who wrote a good book, when when um, on a number of books. He, um, and he talks about this disappointment with God and when bad things happen. He says this, let's face it, too often evangelicals have offered guilt. You must have done something to deserve this. And frustration, you must not be praying hard enough. Have you ever heard that from somebody? To sufferers. Thousands of years later, we keep falling back on the same rationalistic explanations of suffering that were voiced eloquently by Job's three friends and repudiated in a withering attack by God. You read the book of Job, that's what they finally say. You must have done something bad, Job. And God blasts them for their foolishness. So the Bible doesn't give an explanation why bad things happen. First of all, God, it does, you know, God is not limited. And all bad things that do happen are not a direct linear result in a mathematical formula as a result of, you know, karma or your sin or moral behavior. Actually, the Bible has no explanation. It doesn't even try. What we have here in Nahum is a presentation, not an explanation. An epiphany and a theophany, God showing up and showing who he is and all his power. We don't have a theodicy, an explanation of it. We have a paradox, both God all-powerful and all-loving, not a bunch of propositions. Matt Chandler said, it well, it's kind of like trying to figure out God is like trying to catch a fish in the Pacific Ocean with an inch of dental floss. Or I would say it's kind of like, um, I'm kind of like a dog, and you're trying to teach me algebra. That's how I'm trying to understand God, you know? I'm never going to understand the algebra because it's just totally outside of my pay grade. So what we're going to learn in Nahum are, the, uh, are just two points today. I know I'm finally getting to my points, and you're going like, what? It's, been, it's a long introduction, but the points are simple and profound at the same time. We've got both the God of the hurricane, and we've got the God of the covenant, in this passage. First of all, the God of the hurricane, and that's where he says, his way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Basically, Nahum is showing God in his appearing before Nahum. He's describing who God is, in his power and his glory, and, and that all is to tell you, you can't control God. You are not in control. God is in control, as simple and profound as that. And you'd think we human beings would have figured it out a long time ago that we are so limited and contingent and unable to control things. And yet, time and again, that's all we're trying to do. If our technology is not just basically optimized for making money and commerce, Our technology is optimized to make us feel like we're in control. And most of the time, we feel pretty in control. Most of the time. R.C. Sproul says, yeah, even Christians, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of man, (laughs) how we really live. That is, until your phone rings at 2.14 in the morning, Or the pink slip is found in your inbox as you open your email. Or the hurricane, as we saw, its track all of a sudden shifts and we're in the cone of unpredicted, you know, what the heck is going on? And let me tell you, when that happened with Ian this fall, I don't know about you, but I just said, oh God, no. Please, no. How in the world? How can we have this happen again? You know what we've all been through down here. Please, God, I don't know where. Send it, I don't care, somewhere else. Of course, I felt pretty bad about trying to send it up to Tallahassee. But seriously, honestly, I had just this gut level reaction, I don't know about you, of just saying, I've been through, I don't want to do this again. And I don't know how I'm going to do this again. And I don't know why you would have this to be done again. And why would this happen? And yet, no matter how many prayers we all had on it, it came. And it was more destructive than I've ever imagined it would be. And you might, along with most of our humanity, <clears throat> try to figure out God's purpose is hidden in the midst of a hurricane. <laughs> Nahum doesn't want you to actually do that. He's not having God appear before us in the power and the awesomeness of it all to try to get you to figure God out. What he is trying to do is overwhelm you like God did in front of Job in the whirlwind and to, to show that you can't be in control. You're not in control. Just let that go, and then instead, Don't try to discern God's character by looking at his power. Just don't even do that. Now, Martin Luther understood that. Um, in his day and age, he talked about what was called the deus absconditus, which is the hidden God, this God of power, this inscrutable God that goes beyond all, that he knew was in charge of everything that was going on in this world and all the universe, that God is not limited in any way. It's my brain that is limited, my abilities that is limited. And this is how Luther aptly states, from God's perspective, what he's trying to teach us with the God of the hurricane. He says... Let me be hidden where I have not revealed myself to you, says God, or you will be the cause of your own destruction, just as Adam fell into a horrible manner. For he who investigates my majesty will be overwhelmed by my glory. Trying to figure out God when God wants to remain hidden behind all of the, his power and glory and majesty. It's a fool's errand. It will either end in your own despair and frustration or in your self-righteous arrogance. Well, look at me. My house was fine. You must have done something bad that bad things happened to you. That's what's happening when people are trying to speculate when God has remained hidden in all of those things. Instead, as Nahum says here too, Don't run away from the, well, run away or run to the God of the covenant, the God of promise. Our second point. God is in control. God is the God of all power and glory and majesty. But God, more importantly, is the God of covenant, of promise. God has freely chosen to speak and commit himself to a people and to words and promises, and to a people called Israel, not based on their morality, on their theology, on their nobility or their piety, but because God chose out of his love And out of his goodness, as Nahum 1.7 says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. You know, what's so unique about Christian faith among all the world's religions is this idea of the God of promises and that God is a God of people. What you will find in other religions is that God is a God of some natural power or beauty or wonder, or God is above all things, but not of a covenant or a promise or a people. So God god of power is like the God of the storm, like Zeus or Poseidon or Thor, but all God becomes is a projection of what human beings would like to be if we were just had more power. There are no promises in other world religions, by the way. Oh, there are yogic practices to follow. There might be an eightfold path to practice. Or there is a God who judges and creates and stands above it all, transcendent. But there are no promises. In Christianity, what we have here and what Nahum states is we have a God who is both all power and good. One of the great revelations of God and the God of hurricane and wind and thunder and earthquake happens to the prophet Elijah after he has had the most horrible, terrible, difficult time in his life. In the book of 2 Kings, he has just run for his life all the way to Mount Horeb across the wilderness. And he gets to Mount Horeb to try to have another covenant moment with God. And God places him into to the cleft of a rock, kind of like Moses once again. And God comes to him and a, a whole storm passes by him. But the passage says God was not in the storm. And an earthquake happens before him, and God is not in the earthquake. And a fire, and God is not in the fire. And then God approaches Elijah in the whisper of a voice. What are you doing here, Elijah? Don't look for God in the hurricane or the wind or the fire. Know that God is all-powerful, but God wants to speak to you personally and relationally. Name would state, you realize you're not in control. You realize that God can only be held on to by his promises. That he is not limited by any of our imagination, but he chooses to speak words to you, to do specific deeds for you, so you have something to hold on to that is certain and sure. And that you can have God because God has you. I think that's why William Booth, who's the founder of the Salvation Army, put it this way. The greatness of man's power is the measure of his surrender. It's really not about us. It's about us letting go and letting God be in charge. Or the response to his mercy as Nahum 1 says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And that's slow to anger? Do you realize that's part of the most quoted, requoted, rephrased passage in all of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. Time and again, it, it is that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving-kindness that was stated to Moses. And stated again and again in Psalms that we can give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. The hidden God of power in the hurricane. The hidden God of the diagnosis of the tragedy or the triumph. The rising and falling of nations and leaders who controls everything and everything that is. That is true. But run to the God of the covenant. The God of promise. Cling to the God who is revealed to you in Jesus Christ, who shows he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, who does not treat us, as Psalm 103 says, as our sins or who heals our diseases, who forgives our sins, who crowns our life with his love. Go to God where you personally meet him in Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned on Christmas Eve, that's where N.T. Wright said, There you see the hurricane has become human in Jesus. That the God of the galaxies has become a baby. Approachable, vulnerable, understandable. A God who is for us. And it is Jesus Christ who shows you who the true heart of God is so that you can discern in that sense. You can hold on to those promises in the midst of all this other that is going on in our lives. Philip Yancey wrote it this way, and it's a long quote, but I think it's so worth it. How did God on earth respond to pain? Surprisingly, Christ reacted much as we react. When he met a person in pain, he was deeply moved with compassion. When his friend died, he wept. Very often, every time he was directly asked, he healed the pain. Obviously, God is not a God who enjoys seeing us suffer. When he faced pain personally, Christ also responded like most of us. He recoiled from it, asking three times if there was any other way. When there was no other way, he experienced the sense of alienation that all of us feel to some extent at such moments. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out. It was the only prayer Jesus uttered that did not begin with the familiar term Abba or Father. No other religion, not Judaism, not Hinduism, not Buddhism, or Islam, offers this unique contribution of an all-powerful God who willingly takes on the pain of his creation. That is who you have in Jesus Christ. And that is because you have a God of promises, and to make those promises, it meant that God would have to endure the suffering of this world and bear it on himself. That's why such a beautiful song to sing about the old rugged cross, because that's where we see God's answer to the suffering in this world by suffering for it. People around you may often (laughs) try to explain why bad things happen to good people, right? And they're so often wrong. It's too easy to be wrong about it, right? Speculation, like I said, will only lead either to your despair over, oh my goodness, something must be wrong with me. God hates me. Something's wrong. I don't understand. What did I do? Blah, 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 blah. Despair. Or to arrogance. Oh, I must have been okay. I'm good. Look, I'm safe. God likes me. I'm like this with God because it didn't happen to me. Neither of which is the God God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's much more important to ask this question. Rather than why did suffering happen, how do I respond to the suffering I see around me? And that is how Jesus, just to following him, how he suffered for us and then frees us to walk alongside others who are in the midst of pain. Not to try to fix it, not to, definitely not to explain it, <laughs> but to be present with them in the midst of what they're going through and to serve them in whatever way is best. And if you happen to be the one who's in the middle of that suffering, well, hold on to the goodness and promises of God. And I think that's why Jerry Briggs says it this way, that which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and he brings or allows to come into our lives only that which is for his glory and our good, which is another way of really restating Romans 8, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God is in control, and you are not. God works all things for good. God is the God of the hurricane, and he is the God of the covenant. As Nahum states, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, um, we know what it's like, Lord, to go through the chaos and the destruction and the frustrations and the loss, Lord how unpredictable life has been in so many ways, and how much we want to control it all, Lord, and just find a place of safety rather than a place of just eternal security in you. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to take charge. Help us to see both the theophany, that appearance, that explosive, amazing, Almighty, beyond our understanding, power that you have, Lord God, your sovereignty over all things, and yet that you have chosen to be subject to all things in your son, Jesus Christ, and, to sub- and he subjecting himself to suffering and death for us and in our place. We thank you, Lord God, for this word from Nahum of your power but your goodness. Lord, you know how we have struggled and how many are struggling in our area yet. Lord, it's only been a couple of months and there's so much ahead of us, Lord. We do give you thanks for so many good things, but we pray, Lord, that your mercy extends to more and more and that we might be part of it, Lord, that we might respond to those who are around us and to their needs, Lord, as Jesus, you did to the crowns that you cared for and you fed and you healed and you taught, Lord. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would use us in such a way that we would be conformed more and more to your image as Romans 8 also states, Lord, that that is your plan. Heavenly Father, to conform us to the image of your Son and that that we would be the extension, your um, representatives in this world, to especially those who are going through difficult times, Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray for this new year. We pray that we would be your people and you would be our God in such a profoundly deep, foundational way that just who we are in the presence of others would reflect your goodness and glory and would move others to ask the question, Where is your hope coming from? How do you have hope in the midst of all these things? So Lord, we pray um, for you to use us in bringing healing and reconciliation and truth and conviction and forgiveness and grace to the lives of many people. But we need that for ourselves as well, Lord, and for us to be still to rest in your presence. We pray that you would prepare us as we um, will receive, uh, Lord Jesus, um, the gift that you give in in, the, in Holy Communion today. We pray that you would uh, move us, Lord, to respond to grace, your grace and mercy in our lives with thanksgiving and the first fruits of our lives, our tithes and offerings for your abundant blessings in the past and anticipating your goodness every day in our future. And we ask, Lord, that your will is done in this coming year. No one else's. Not ours and not anyone else's, but your will is done and your kingdom comes, all for your glory and our good. All this we pray in Jesus' name.